the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome back to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm alongside Ian Simpkins. We're excited that you've chosen to spend some time with us here on this Wednesday afternoon. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. You can text us at 68683. That's 68683. Type in CG followed by your comment. Or you can find our podcast of old shows wherever it is. That you find your podcast. Hey, am I allowed to throw you under the bus right off the bat here? <laughs> it's never stopped you in the past. I love that we do this show every single day and you text me that you missed the exit. <laughs> that's the only time that's ever happened. <laughs> I was so I frazzled. Because I was so my, rattled. my first thought was like, yeah, I've totally done that with a phone call. You get a phone call and all of a sudden you're like, drive past your house well, or you drive past your road. <laughs> right. You're like at border security. You're like, wow, where, how far did I go? Yeah. But I knew that you were rushing to get here. And then all of a sudden the text goes, well, now I missed the exit. Missed the exit. <laughs> now, now, now my ego's hurt. <laughs> Hopefully that was an easy turnaround and not like, well, almost to Wisconsin now. Here it wasn't we go. Ba- but here's the thing about that, though. Like, it, it wasn't bad. It only set me back nine minutes at yeah. the most. But that nine minutes, I'm just seething. Oh and I have no one to be angry at but myself. It's the most insane I feel like I'm the most impatient person when I'm in my car, and missing an exit is high on that list. Especially that moment, because you're like, oh, ah. this wasn't a time. This is just a complete waste of time. There's well, nothing about and this. And not just my time. I'm like, I'm wasting your time. Like, I'm late to, I'm letting other people, you know, down. Like, I just don't I like mean, any of it. I've not been angrier than those nine minutes in a long time. You seem pretty furious. <laughs> Actually, it was a content. <laughs> I'm in. Well, anyway, we're glad that you're joining us today. Uh, hey, man, I was reading through the New York Times today. That makes me sound kind of highbrow. I'm, I was going to say, were you or did you just we're gonna read go. the headlines? We're going okay. to go that I did. <laughs> All right. Uh, and uh, David Brooks, who is a fascinating writer, whatever you think about him, one way or the other, he wrote an article entitled Five Lies Our Culture Tells. Hmm. Five Lies Our Culture Tells. And so I love a good list, uh, but always a reminder that this is out of the New York Times. So this is more speaking to, it says, college mental health facilities are swamped. Suicide rates are spiking uh, tens of millions and for tens of millions of Americans. At the root of it's the following problem. We've created a culture based on lies. So this isn't like Christianity Today going, ooh, our secular culture gives us these lies. This is the New York Times, and it's saying these are the lies. So I'm going to read them, kind of describe them a little bit, okay. and, and you can respond to them. The first is this. Career success is fulfilling. That's the first lie. Uh. He says, This is the lie we foist on the young. In their tender years, we put the most privileged of them inside 
admissions processes and begins this whole process that if you succeed, you get the best job, you succeed in your in your career, that that will ultimately fulfill you. Which is a lot of the thinking behind a lot of this college uh, bribery scandal, right. right? That if I could just set my kid up, uh, then they're, they're set. And I think uh, we've done multiple stories over the last three months about um, the, uh, the, the the assumed correspondence between career success yes. and happiness. And uh, it is pretty surprising that more and more agencies seem to be picking up on the fact that this might not actually be true. Yeah, again, it's fascinating that often these have a, a – a, uh, they resonate a little bit biblically here, but uh-huh. this is not written from that standpoint. Number two, the second lie our culture tells us, according to David Brooks, I can make myself happy. Hmm. He says this is the lie of self-sufficiency. This is a lie that happiness is an individual accomplishment. But people looking back on their lives from their deathbeds tell us that happiness is found amid thick and loving relationships. It's found by defeating self-sufficiency for the state of mutual Dependence. You're like Mr. Community, so this one's right up your alley. <laughs> I am. I don't mean that by the church that you, that you lead. I mean, like, you love to talk about it's better to do things together. Yeah, it's yeah, better yeah, to be yeah. together. So he's saying, uh, again, from a secular point of view, one of the lies we tell people is that you can make yourself happy. Yeah, well, and he, I mean, this is like, this paragraph is right at the core of where I struggle. It's easy to say you live for relationships, but it's very hard to do. It's hard to see other people in all their complexity. It's hard to communicate from your depths, not your shallows. It's hard to stop performing. No one teaches us these skills. And, I, man, I never really thought about yep. how when we're disingenuous, that is a, a form of performing. It's a form of, okay, I need to be Pastor Brian Fromm right now. I need to be Father Brian Fromm right now. Mm-hmm. Like, there is expectations. And not that, you know, any of that is bad, but it can be really hard to not only see people for their complexities, but to actually allow ourselves to be seen in our complexities because, I think he's spot on. It's not actually really a skill set yes. that we teach people. We yep. just expect people to be good at it. All right. Number three, uh, kind of along the same lines, uh, life is an individual journey. Uh, this is a lie that books like Dr. Seuss's Oh, the Places You'll Go Tell, that in adulthood, each person goes on a personal trip and racks up a bunch of experiences, uh, and whoever has the most experiences wins. But he says life, uh, it is a lie that life is an individual journey. Hmm. Yeah, I think that is uh, kind of akin to the previous one, but, you know, I've said it a couple of times that if you want to go fast, go alone. If mm-hmm. you want to go far, go together. And I think uh, it is funny that articles like this always seem to cite people who are on their deathbeds or yes. people who have, you know, lived 70, 80, 90 years. And I think when I was 12, I really didn't understand the wisdom of people who have been on the planet for seven, eight, nine decades. Yep. The older I get, the more I realize how little I know and how right. <laughs> like, man, we need to listen to the people who are like, you know, as you say, landing the plane, so to speak. And we don't. We, I, I mean, it, ma- it makes me a little crazy sometimes. I, I hear people talk to or about um, the people in their 70s and 80s and 90s, sometimes like their pets. It's like, oh, hey, how are you doing? Yeah. Like, that guy jumped out of a plane. She raised seven kids. Exactly. Like, like we don't, I, I don't think we honor the, the wisdom and experience of the, the generation that's come before us in the way that I think would really help us learn these lessons better. Absolutely. That's good, man. Hey, here's the next one. You have to find your own truth. He says this is the privatization of meaning. But then he says the reality is that values are created and passed down by strong, self-confident community and institutions. And we get these, he says, by submitting to communities. I don't know. That sounds like church to me. Yeah. I mean, he goes on to quote some Aristotle who, you know, Aristotle is not our Messiah, but he had some good things to say. And the idea of, I mean, honestly, maybe this is a different segment. We talk a lot in the West about 
Jesus Christ, your personal Lord and yeah. Savior, a sentence that does not show up in the New, in the New Testament, Correct. by the way. But we even sometimes, I think, over-individualize mm-hmm. some of that process when, what, is it, what does it mean to believe together, yeah. to believe for one another sometimes? I think that's really helpful. That's good. The last one, rich and successful people are worth more than poor and less successful people. We pretend we don't tell this lie, but our whole meritocracy points to it. Uh. In fact, the meritocracy contains, what's that word, skein of lies. Mm. And so he says the, that the lie that we tell people from early on is that it's a meritocracy of that if you're rich and successful, you are more valuable yeah. than the poor and less successful people. This, I, he just says it so well, the message of the meritocracy is that you are what you accomplish. Yes. And this, I, he has the nail on the head too, because this is one that we know we know better than to say out loud, yeah. but we we so often live our lives like that is true. And we've even said it before in other contexts where somebody who's a celebrity or they're a really great athlete, they get fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh chances. Uh, but someone that's not famous that hasn't garnered that kind of um, yes. notoriety, you know, it's sort of a one strike you're out situation. And I think, yeah, one thing to sort of say, oh, we don't believe that's another thing to actually sometimes contribute to a system that perpetuates that. One reason I love doing these kind of lists and stuff like from non uh, Christian publications uh, is that they just they just reek of the Bible, <laughs> the yeah. same Bible yeah, teachings. No kidding. How often do we talk about the strength of community and uh, the money is not the, high, the the root of happiness and that where we find true joy? I think uh, it's very interesting. You can find that at the New York Times today. It's the opinion piece written uh, by, I believe, Richard Brooks. So, well, we're off and running here today on The Common Good. Coming up next... Somebody has said that we will never see a more biblical president than Donald Trump. You and I have some thoughts on this. That's what's coming up next. I don't. No thoughts for me. (laughs) On the common good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to the common good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. I like this song. It's not Modest Mouse, though. Not, Do you notice how I keep saying that so that I remember the one time you're like, who is this? I'm like, I am pretty impressed, though. We're a few days out from the last time I mentioned yep. it, and you've gotten it right every time. I think every day I go to bed, I'm like, Modest Mouse. Modest Mouse. Modest Mouse. <laughs> I'm glad it's climbed up the priority list in your I brain. I want him to be happy with me. I want him to, I want uh, him to be impressed. I'm already impressed. I'm already impressed, Brian, from. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Hey, you and I, uh, I would say that we are not the most political guys in the world, but I do think as pastors, something that's come out in the show is we get a little bothered uh, by the intersection in our in our own congregations, but then kind of nationwide, the intersection of politics when people use um, this guy's a big is a really good Christian. So therefore, we must support them. And that feels like kind of a way to end the conversation. And I, so again, I don't think either you or I are the type of people who are putting signs in our yards and knocking on doors, but instead we're more pastoral. We're, we're more concerned about the church. And so every now and then on either side of the aisle, when things come up that we hear that kind of like, you've got to be kidding me. We now have a radio show where we can put them on and discuss it. Uh, I, before we play this clip, I would like, uh, I, we would love some text, 68683 in response to this. Are we overreacting or is what this person's about to say completely legitimate or is it bothersome to you as well? So 68683, uh, type in CG followed by your comment. So let's listen to this. This is former uh, representative of Minnesota, Michelle Bachman. You might remember she also ran for president. Uh, last in 2016 on the Republican side, she actually for a little while early on had some buzz to her, like kind of felt like, and then she kind of fell off the map. Uh, she was speaking in comments posted online by right wing watch. 
the evangelical former presidential candidate uh, kind of gushed about Donald Trump, President Trump, on Understanding the Times radio program. So let's listen to this. In my lifetime, I have never seen a more biblical president than I have seen in Donald Trump. He has so impressed me with what he's done. And we haven't even talked about Israel, what he has done to to advance Israel. So he is highly biblical. And I would say to your listeners, we will in all likelihood never see a more godly biblical president again in our lifetimes. So we need to be not only praying for him, we need to support him, in my opinion, in every possible way that we can. Mm. So when we discussed the death penalty the other day, we played a clip and you just looked at me and said, thoughts? So now I get to do that to you. Thoughts? Uh, I don't have any. <laughs> yes, you do. We've, we've got time to fill. <laughs> Isn't that the end of the segment? <laughs> Not even close. Thanks for joining us on The Common Good. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, again, it's a soundbite. Yep. So uh, giving all the grace where grace is due, that's just a couple of sentences out of a much longer interview, uh, I have not listened to the whole interview, just to be fair. Uh, I don't know the context. Uh, I, I would, I do agree, we should be praying for our leaders. So Agreed. I'm like 100% on there. Yep, we absolutely need to be. Um, <laughs> can I just laugh for another three, four, five minutes? Um, <laughs> You're squirming. I don't know that I'm squirming. I'm wanting, I'm wanting to be level-handed. Yep. Uh, level-handed? Headed. Even-handed, Le- even-handed level, level, yeah. Clearly, I'm neither. Uh, I think it again. Okay, let me get let me get into the weeds a little bit, and then I'll yep. and then I'll broaden out to say when we use words like biblical, yep. you know, yep. what part of the Bible are you referring to? Yep. <laughs> First off, you know, we talk about a biblical leader. There were some pretty horrific leaders yep. found in our Bible. Yep. <laughs> every version of our Bible, every translation, every I mean, apocryphal or Protestant, yep. whatever. Um, so, so those types of statements already, just as a as a pastor, as someone who really, really cares about Scripture, reading it well, those types of sentiments and comments and sweeping, um, sweeping uh, categorizations yep. are always a little tough for me. Like even when we talk about, I mean, let's just get into it: biblical marriage, yeah. which marriage? There's all sorts of different kinds of marriages yeah. found in the Bible, and I think that sometimes we don't ask enough questions there. Um, I do think that there's a lot that I could understand maybe why she's come to this conclusion, but there's just so much more, whether it's tapes that are leaked or hush money or comments mm-hmm. made outright in the last two weeks at podiums with microphones and cameras, not hidden conversations, not that I'm excusing it, but outright, um, dismissive of people groups and people. And, um, I just think it is it is tough for me if if what she's saying is we've never had a more Christ-like president. Um, I I take some issues with that. Yeah, uh, and and I think it, it something's weird going on in our politics, and I think I get it because uh, Trump many in many ways got into the White House through the evangelical vote, right? And so it feels like both sides are trying to appeal to the Christians and say. He's more godly. No, he's more godly. No, he's more godly because whichever one we can prove is more godly on either side, that's who you're going to vote for. Right, like it's American gladiators of religiosity or something. Exactly. It's like, and I think we've said this before, like, you know, the character of the president absolutely matters. Yeah. But we're also not, we're not electing a pastor. And so that is not the only criteria. And so I think that there's purpose behind what she's saying. She's trying to say to the Christians out there, you need to vote for him because... He's more godly. 
On the other side of the aisle, we talked the other day about the South Bend mayor, Pete Buttigieg, right? Buttigieg, that's right. Yep. Yep. What's a lot of the conversation going on about him? People trying to say that even though he's a married gay man, look at his, uh, he goes to church, he does this. And a lot of the conversation around him is like, what kind of Christian is he? And he, even in a speech the other day, held himself up as a quote unquote, you'd see air quotes if you could see me right now, as a quote unquote better Christian than Donald Trump. And and the question is, why is that the the primary conversation going on right now? And I think it goes back to that they believe whoever can be held up as the more Christian president or presidential candidate is going to becoming is going to who most Christians are going to vote for. But it's just I I don't think that that's she can't believe this. Like, it it, it just. (laughs) Oh, I think she does, Brian. I think she actually does be true. Like, like, just go. You know what? I think you should vote for Donald Trump because the economy's good. Yeah. And I think you should vote for Donald Trump because he's going to put justices into the courts that you might agree with more. I think you should vote for I'm speaking for her, like, because he's going to, you know, she mentioned Israel. He's going to do something about Israel, whatever. You can welcome to appeal to these certain things, but to go to a guy's character and say, hey, he's more godly than anybody else who's ever been the president of the United States is a is is a I almost said a bold statement. It's a foolish statement. Well, she didn't say godly. She said biblical. So, you know, maybe there is maybe that's another conversation. I'm not. (laughs) But she does go on to say, in all likelihood, we will never see a more godly biblical president again in our lifetime. Hmm. Uh, You know, now you're appealing to things that are that are, you know, debatable at best. Yeah. And that you can't really say, like, go ahead and appeal to the issues about him. Like, I don't know. You and I, we've never talked about who we voted for, and we don't need to have that conversation. Maybe if we're still doing this show after today or, <laughs> or when it leads up to the next election, we could talk about who we're going to vote for. But uh, I, I don't know. We've learned a lot about Donald Trump, and I don't think that necessarily uh, throughout his life, godliness is the first adjective to be used. So, but go ahead. If you think he's the best conservative candidate who's going to do the best for the economy, who's going to do the best for the things you care about, yeah. have at it. Have at it. And I, this is the other side of the aisle, too. It's always about like, well, no, this guy's more godly. He goes to church. He Just just that's OK. OK, let us make a decision based on uh, what's out there. Tell us what you believe. And I don't know. These kind of things just bother me so much because they cheapen um kind of the dialogue. I just feel like they're playing to the stupidity of um, of how they think people vote. See, and I don't think it's stupidity, actually. If I could offer maybe a surprising counter perspective, sure. I think everything you just outlined appeals to the way Brian Fromm's brain works. Sure. I want to hear about po- don't tell me about character. Don't now, tell I've me told about you. I've told you we had a co- long conversation before that the character does matter. To I me. know that it does. It I'm does not, and I and I know that it does on a personal level. And yep. I, don't, I think all of our listeners would agree with that. What you just outlined, though, as a as an approach, as a, as a tactic, does appeal to the way your brain is wired no and likely doesn't to others. So if you're right, and I think you might be, in assessing and asserting that there's always going to be some level of political theater, yep. then somebody appealing to their moral superiority is a tactic and apparently yes. a successful one. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's not one that's new to this presidency or even in our lifetime, I think that it's been an approach for a long time. And I think um, I think to speak to someone's 
to speak to their preference of a particular moral character, whether we agree with that assessment or not, uh, isn't stupidity. I think it's how a lot of people vote. We know this even from the Kennedy-Nixon uh, interview, right, that, that infamous interview that those who heard on the radio came to one conclusion and one who saw the, the televised broadcast right. came to a completely different conclusion simply based on their gut perception of who looked more trustworthy. We've been mm-hmm. voting for who we deem more trustworthy, I think, for as long as humans have been voting. Yeah. And uh, that makes sense to me, at least as a tactic, whether or not I agree with her conclusion. I feel like we're going to have this conversation a lot more. <laughs> every, time, every time we bring up politics, it feels like we're stepping in the weeds. But uh, it's an important conversation yeah. because we long for all of us as Christians to think Christianly about politics, to think Christianly about the issues. Uh, and so we would love to know what you think about what we've said, but more so what she said, uh, whether it be on Facebook when we put this up or whether it be by text. You could text us at 68 68- 683, that's 68683, type in CG, followed by your comment. Well, coming up next, uh, we are going to ask this question, especially for those of us who have been believers for a long time. Does grace still amaze us? In this Easter week, are we still amazed by the grace of God? That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm, and we are excited to join you again on this Holy Week. Easter's coming. Did you know that? I was unaware. (laughs) This week? Oh, wow. Easter week is here. And for those of us who are pastors, uh, I'm a pastor at Four Quarters Community Church. Ian is over at the Yellow Box at Community Christian Church in Naperville. Uh, it is, it's a big week and you would like to say, oh, every week's a big week, but there's something different about Easter week. And if you're out there and you're not normally a church goer, this is a great week to drop in. I know your church has all, you know, being one of the bigger churches in town has all sorts of services throughout the weekend. Mm -hmm. Uh, our church, you can welcome to come. Uh, we, we meet at nine and 1030, uh, on Sunday morning, also on good Friday at six 30. So this is a time to plug in and be reminded, but I kind of want to have a conversation about those of us who have been in church forever who have been in church for a long time. And there was this article on the Desiring God website that simply has this Randy Alcorn. I love Randy Alcorn, right? He's written uh, stuff on money, stuff on heaven. He writes this article that just says this, does grace still amaze you? And I think that this is such a powerful question for those of us uh, who have been raised in the church, Mm. where this is, you know, uh, we can't remember the first time we did Easter. This is just a yearly thing. We go to church every week. And all of these things. And the question I think he poses is one that I'd love for us to wrestle with. Uh, does grace still amaze you when you when you get it, when, when you come to Easter and you you are reminded of the good news of the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus? Uh, do does that still conjure up thankfulness and worship in us or? Have we subtly started living our lives like we're beyond our own need for the gospel, right? Like the gospel was the starting point, but you know what, I'm a professional Christian now, or I've been for 40 years, or I've been whatever. And so I kind of want to have that conversation and then ask how, how does the person out there who's been a Christian for a long time continue to be amazed uh, by the grace of Jesus in their life? You know, I think there's probably a lot we can learn from the metaphors that Jesus gives us, not Mm -hmm. the least of which is uh, the church being his bride. So you and I are also both married, and I think it's safe to say, I won't speak for you, but here I I go anyway. (laughs) Speak for me. There probably are days where you wake up and you're like, you know what? I don't feel madly in love with my wife. Mm -hmm. I just don't. I I mean, that's not true, honey. (laughs) 
I'll just speak for myself. Uh, but uh, you know, and that's I not totally that's not it. only for, right. that's not only for married folk either. Um, there Absolutely. are days great friendships. You're like, oh. Yeah. I don't know that I feel total yep. complete affection for that person the way that I did maybe a year ago or yep. ten years ago, and uh, so there is something to be said about that. And that's some of the some of the harsh, harshest criticisms in, in Revelation are about churches just doing work apart from their first love, yep. right? Like doing things for God isn't the same as doing things with God. So yep. God takes intimacy and closeness very very seriously, and I think that in that is is part of the secret because uh, you had mentioned this a couple days ago. Sometimes. Like even uh, in places where, you know, we would travel the world to see one of these wonders of the world. But the people who live there are like, yeah, that's just Notre Dame. That's that's always there. We're all susceptible to doing that to both, I think, physical and spiritual things in our life. And I remember the first time that grace, like as a concept, really wrecked me. It really did. It was Mm. I was like in a puddle of tears. Like I just couldn't. It was so overwhelming to me. And I remember why um, I, I was dealing with a lot of. Like just feelings of, you know, worth and identity and purpose and direction and not for any specific reason. I had two, I still do, two amazing parents that both loved Jesus and like cared for us well. And um, I just remember being in a season feeling like, I don't know that I'm I'm truly known by anybody Mm. in this like grace that came after me and, and saw all of the stupid stuff I had said and done. And it really, really was amazing like the song says it was just amazing and like you said now you you know you become like professional christians that sometimes you can even be saying the words and wonder like wow when was the last time i actually really felt that way Mm -hmm. now i don't mean to elevate feeling or emotion above everything because sometimes there is just like a there's an intellectual depth of like wow grace is not just this passive like oh you get to go to the good place instead of the bad place when you die but it's like man it keeps coming after us it helps us put sin to death in our life like that's the it becomes much more vast, and so it starts to amaze me in different ways. In the same way that when I first saw my my wife, the first time I saw her before I talked to her, I was like, "What? Mm. What a stunning woman that is!" Yeah. But now, now I I still believe that. Yeah. But there's so many other layers now. I'm like, yeah, yeah, she's absolutely stunning. And man, when I I like to see the way that she cares for our boys, or yeah. I see the way that she like takes time for people in our church community, I'm like, oh, the depth that you know, it maybe isn't the same. Mm like first introduction butterflies every day, but there's so much more. Yeah. It's like three dimensional now. And I, I love that part of the journey when it comes to grace, like, you know, that uh, amazement I think can take on def- different definitions as we grow. Yeah, Yesterday when you and I were talking about that fire at Notre Dame and we had that conversation that like probably for most Parisians, they just walked by it every day Yeah, and it became just part of their landscape. Until it was gone. Right. Or not, it's not gone, but until it was burning. Yeah, right. Uh, how many New Yorkers walked by every day the World Trade Center and then it wasn't there? And, you know, to move it beyond buildings, but to move it instead into personal lives, how many of us, uh, you know, not to get too melodramatic, how many of us take advantage of the relationships in our lives until they're not there? Uh, and people totally, are, totally guilty. I mean, you're doing a funeral today. And, mm-hmm. and how many people at that funeral are thinking, if I could just have one more day with this person, if I could just have one more conversation? Uh, they didn't think that a week, two weeks ago when that person was still here. And, and I think, Grace, like, yeah, I think you've done a really good job to show that it's kind of works the same way, that that you can just become somewhat numb to it. Yeah. That, like, yeah, of course I'm saved by grace. That's, yeah, okay, I'm saved by grace. I often will say when I'm preaching, like, I will tell people, like, 
no, no, hear my words, because I think sometimes what happens when you're in church here, you hear the words and your next thought is, where am I going to lunch after church? Yeah, right. Or are we almost done or what? No, no, you got you to <laughs> right. think about it. And that's what makes Easter so good. Good Friday is a time to sit and think about the, crucif- the crucifixion. That's right. Easter is a great time to sit and think and celebrate the empty tomb. Uh, and so many of us need that reminder. But man, I've been a Christian for a long time. It becomes so easy to get into the mindset that this grace is for other people. Yeah, <laughs> that, yeah. That right. I'm no longer desperately in need of it, and I'm, uh, I'm the chief of this. I need that reminder. Yeah, one of the things he says at the beginning of this article, I thought was really good. He says, "Because grace is so incomprehensible to us, we instinctively smuggle in conditions so we don't look so bad, and God's offer won't seem so counterintuitive. By the time we're done qualifying the gospel." Mm. We're no longer unworthy and powerless. We're no longer wretches, and the grace is no longer grace. This idea of, like, we almost have to soften the scandal of grace to, like, appease our own discomfort. Yeah. You know, it's like when someone yeah. just gives you a gift for no reason. It's not your birthday. It's not Christmas. It's not an yeah. anniversary. Isn't our first instinct like, why? <laughs> why? Yeah. No, go, because I love you. And you're like, your brain starts to, like, yes. search for answers. Like, wait, that can't, that can't really be true. You just got it for me because you love me? Like, yeah. that feels so out of the ordinary, and I think grace uh, in a, a trillion times more has this way of, like, there's some discomfort there because mm-hmm. there's no other category for it, and there's no other comparison for it, and I think that, that for me is, like, that is really humbling, particularly when you're a vocational minister, yes. to not just simply say these words, but to, like, live in them. It's why meditation, it's why it's why awe, it's why wonder is so important because otherwise these just become concepts that we, you know, are skilled at talking about. Absolutely. Like how, how often from the front have we talked about Romans 3 and the fact that yeah. that this is a gift of God. Right. Like it's not something we've earned. But then we kind of slip into this mindset that's like, you know, hey, I'm a professional Christian. I went to this Christian school. I got this degree. God's probably pretty happy with me. Like, right, right. He's I'd like probably, glad I'm on his team. Exactly. Right. In fact, I, you know, I'm probably pretty helpful to him. And, and <laughs> right, that other, right. other people need that gift of grace, but that we slowly, we would never say it, but we slowly start to lose uh, just even our realization that, mm. that we are in need of that grace. Friends, that's what makes Easter such good news. And so we we pray that you will, we hope that you'll end up in church this week and, and that while you're there, you will be reminded again uh, of the overwhelming grace of God that's found in Jesus Christ. That's good. Well, coming up next on The Common Good, speaking of Easter, we're going to, as pastors, talk about an article that said from Christianity Today that says five errors to drop from your Easter sermon. I'm interested, oh boy. as one who was writing his Easter sermon today, I'm kind of interested in that. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're excited that you're joining us here on this Holy Week. Easter is coming, Good Friday is coming, and as pastors, I'm the lead pastor at Four Corners Community Church in Darien, Illinois, and Ian uh, is the teaching pastor over at Community Christian Church, the Yellow Box in Naperville. Uh, so I think you've even, I think you even said it earlier that uh, that Easter is kind of the Super Bowl. Like it's kind of the Super Bowl week for us pastors. Yeah, I kind of hated that I said that though. <laughs> I don't. That, I don't think I like that comparison for a number of reasons. As soon as it left my mouth, I was like, "Oh, yep, yep. that's not a good comparison." Which I totally get it though. I think what you meant by it was it's a big week. Yeah, like, it's, it's a big, a big deal. Week, right. But 
I, I get it. We want to say every Sunday matters, and we're remembering the resurrection. Oh, it's and not all even Sundays. that. I just don't like the comparison to the resurrection and a sporting event. Oh. <laughs> just in general for okay. me, I was like, ugh, I don't. I okay. just, yeah. How about I, the Masters? Kentucky Derby? All right. <laughs> See, I know what you're doing here. I'm not biting Brian <laughs> from. sporting event is it? And so as we prepare sermons, you and I have both preached Easter sermons, and it's always fun to do. Christianity Today uh, reposted an article that they did a couple years ago entitled Five Errors to Drop from Your Easter Sermon. And now I was already prepping my Easter sermon, so I'm a little worried to look at this today. <laughs> As well you should be. Uh, and some of these seem pretty random. It's going to be kind of fun to go through these. Some of these I think are important. Some of these are a little bit like, yeah, okay. So the first one, I'm going to read them. And <laughs> You're going to read them and make me respond, aren't yeah, you? I'll respond too. Okay, we'll go good. first. The All first right. one says, don't say Jesus died when he was 33 years old. Totally agree. Number two. <laughs> <laughs> it says this. <laughs> Virtually no scholar believes Jesus was actually 33 when he died. Jesus was born before Herod the Great issued the decree to execute all the male children in Bethlehem. And, Herod, and before Herod died in the spring of 4 B.C., if Jesus was born in the fall of 5 or 6 B.C., uh, then Jesus would have been between 37 or 38 years old when he died. So <laughs> I like that they add this at the end. No major doctrine is, is uh, affected by this common misconception, but don't damage your credibility by confidently proclaiming facts from the pulpit that are not true. Well, okay, so I, and I think that's actually a really important way to end yep. that. He's yep. saying, okay, it's actually not make or break, but... Credibility does matter. And we've talked about this in previous segments where even some of the nervousness you and I feel, like quoting scientific studies Mm -hmm. in a sermon, even as I'm saying, I'm like, gosh, I hope this is right. Like, I'm not a scientist, so I kind of really think this is, you know, you try and do your due diligence. But uh, I think it is a matter of credibility, and that's a good caution. Yep. Number two, don't explain the apparent absence of a lamb at the Last Supper by only saying Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. While it's glorious true that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, this does not mean that there was no physical lamb at the Lord's Supper. It's basically saying just because it doesn't say, you know, Jesus cut up the lamb or whatever, it doesn't mean that it wasn't there. And in fact, the, it's clear that Jesus celebrated Passover with the Twelve on the night of the crucifixion. So likely there was a lamb there. Yep. And uh, this kind of falls under the category, again, of accuracy and credibility. Like, you don't need to make up stuff within the crucifixion story and the Easter story. It kind of stands on its own. Well, and that's kind of tied to the next one, too, because I think the point isn't uh, making up stuff for the sake of making stuff up. But right. it, like, creates extra drama. It's yes. a little tweetable, let's be honest. And I think... Like, with um, the disciples there going, where's the lamb? Oh, where's that lamb? I'm the lamb. <laughs> Holy cow. Roll credits. Boom. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Dallas Jenkins. Uh, <laughs> I just I just think that there's there is there's some really unique challenges to preaching and I think credibility is just the surface of it because even that is a call to action is like oh yep. you want people to know you're credible you're like yeah you also want to preach truth like the the highest aim isn't just so that people know that you have integrity like it's important to not you know to not uh, add stuff just so that the sermon is well. And just to make it clear, like Dallas Jenkins, I think, has done an incredible job with his team to like research and prepare to kind of fill in some of the gaps. So the third one I mentioned is sort of the same uh, in the same vein. Don't say the same crowds worship Jesus on Palm Sunday and then cried out for his crucifixion on Good Friday. This kind of statement makes for a powerful sermon point to illustrate the fickleness of the human heart when it comes to Jesus the Messiah. 
But a couple of uh, qualifications need to be added. First, it's not entirely clear that the Hosanna crowd uh, acclaiming Jesus' triumphal entry is the same group of people as the Crucify Him crowd gathered before Pontius Pilate. The former seem to be mainly pilgrims from Galilee along with Jesus' disciples, while the latter seem to be largely those from Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. That small detail, I think, is actually a really important thing to distinguish. Uh, Can I make a confession? Uh, yeah, I said this in the Palm Sunday service last week. Did you? I, it wasn't a point, but I did say something to the effect of what happened that the same, some of the same yeah. people. So guilty. <laughs> guilty. I appreciate you owning that up. Yep, yep. Well, I know that you'd probably go back and cut it up from like my church website and all of a sudden play it like boom. Yeah, I, already, I already have Josh play that clip. <laughs> nah, Number four, don't bypass the role of the women as witnesses of the resurrected Christ. Preach. The number and identity of the women at the res- in the resurrection accounts can be difficult to untangle, which is one of the reasons why we provide, they say, about a, a book they do. Uh, but as you preach this Easter, do not bypass the testimony of the women as an incidental detail. In the first century, women were not even eligible to testify in a Jewish court of law, and it keeps to go out through this. And so what these guys are saying, and this is the most powerful one to me in this whole list, is that it matters, yep. and it was not an accident. That, that it was the women who first testified to Jesus' resurrection and that uh, the, the men, you know, off, that they were kind of hiding off and didn't believe them. Can I just say it this way? Yep. It was women preachers who first <laughs> told of the resurrection. Am I going to get in trouble for that? Probably. All right. Well, but, I, I stand by it. Uh, it. It is important. And it is, it's a powerful sermon point, but it is one we often jump from, uh, you know, from, we jump to different places. And I've heard great sermons that have included this, but it's just saying, hey, don't make the mistake. When you're telling the story, tell the right story. Tell yeah. uh, tell the sequence that it went. Last one. Don't focus on the suffering of Jesus to the extent that you neglect the glory of the cross in and through the resurrection. Certain Christian traditions tend to focus almost unilaterally on the suffering of Jesus on the cross, on the pain and the humiliation and the separation. Uh, this can be seen in the passion of the Christ, and this is they're saying that's okay. And yet there's another aspect of the Easter story. It is best encapsulated in John's statement that Jesus, when he knew that his hour had come to depart the world, uh, to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, loved them to the end. So it's saying, don't just focus on the brutality of the cross. Make sure to unpack the hopefulness of the cross and also the hopefulness of the empty tomb. Yeah, and it's funny that this one's included because I feel like we often do the opposite. I, I, don't, I don't think we overglorify, at least in my limited experience, I feel like we often jump right to resurrection and miss some of like the human suffering and pain. We don't, we don't sit in the pain and anguish of Holy Saturday. And You're so right. to give each of those its proper space before we get to the empty tomb, I think is so important. I actually think Saturday is an interesting conversation because I think Saturday is the one that we skip, right? Yep. Friday's is really dark. Sunday's really celebratory, and you forget that crazy that day. Space that space in been, between, yep. That would have been Saturday. Well, the first hour is done. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. This is The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins.
Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Really been enjoying the dialogues that have been going on there uh, and some of the stuff uh, online at 1160hope.com, or you can find old shows and podcasts wherever it is that you download your podcast. And also you can text us at 68683. That's 68683. Type in CG followed by your comment or your question. And, man, we're going to jump into one here where I would love people to interact with us and to um, to hear their responses, whether it be on Facebook or whether it be texting. Uh, it's a story that just came out today uh, out of the Washington Post. So, again, uh, not, a, not out of Christianity Today or Christian Post or something. This is right out of the Washington Post. Uh, and it is an, a long article uh, about the 2020 presidential candidates and how much they've given to charity. Oh, boy. And I'm interested, A, to just give the information. Okay. But I also want to go dig it a little deeper. And this is where we want to hear back from you guys on the text line is, like, does any of this matter? Uh, such as you and I did that art, that story the other day about uh, pastors spending a lot of money on shoes. Remember uh-huh. that one? Yeah, I do. And then we, we put it up on Facebook. And almost all the comments were, they can spend their money however they want. It's their money, That's their not money. my issue. I was actually surprised by yeah, that. I, I thought was that too. was going to be like kind of piling on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I love to go, oh, I'm glad I said that during the show. <laughs> like, I'm glad I said they can spend it how they want. But Yeah, I think I might have been more aggressive on that one than yeah, you. <laughs> yeah. And so I was very surprised by that. So maybe we'll be surprised by this one. Maybe you're going to say, hey, people can have a certain policy, but at the same time, live a certain way. And so I'm, I'm let me give you some of the background. So. Okay. Congressman Beto O'Rourke released 10 years of tax returns last night. He and his wife reported uh, just over $1,100 of charitable giving from a total income of $370,000 in 2017. Not great. That is one-third of 1%. Not great. And so I want you to remember what their policies are as we're talking Uh about. Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders and his wife gave $19,000 to charity out of an income of $566,000 last year, or 3.4%. Uh, now, the campaign has come out to say that the Sanders campaign said those rates do not reflect charitable proceeds given from one of his books. But oh. they're coming out and arguing. Okay. okay. But then All the right. campaign did not say how much was given in that case. Uh, Cam- uh, Kamala Harris uh, released 15 years of tax returns. Uh, her and her husband earned $1.9 million last year and gave $27,000 to charity, uh, which comes out to 1.4%. And you just keep going down and down. In fact, the most generous of the top-tier presidential candidates uh, appears to be Elizabeth Warren. Uh, She and her husband donated $50,000 last year of their $906,000 income. That's 5.5%. Uh, for those of you who are like, yeah, see, none of those Democrats give any money. Uh, well, President Trump's past claims of generous charitable giving have been widely debunked and shown not to be true. Uh, Joe Biden has taken heat. Mitt Romney, uh, he kind of kind of soars in this conversation where they gave away 29.4 percent in 2012. Uh, for those of you who are uh, thinking this is only one side of the aisle versus the other. Barack and Michelle Obama gave 22% of their income to charity in 2011. Oh, all right. Uh, whereas in that same year, Joe and Jill Biden gave 1.5%. And so no kidding. those are the backgrounds. And I find these fascinating. But here's what I want us all to wrestle with. Uh, and I want you, 
to help us think about this is, uh, does this matter? <laughs> or is this just more flamethrower stuff for the candidates you don't like? Oh, I didn't like that guy. I don't like Beto O'Rourke already. Look, he's he's cheap and doesn't help people. Or or do does it bother you that the people who might be saying, hey, we should be giving this money away to these people or these people are actually not generous themselves? Does that matter for you? It would matter to me even if they weren't saying those things out loud, to it be would. honest. It okay. would. Then um, that's probably a whole different conversation. But you brought it up that particular way, so I'll address it that particular way. Because a lot of these platforms uh, hold to some pretty outspoken opinions and convictions about giving and generosity, Um, some of these findings are disappointing, to say the least, on both sides of the aisle. You mentioned that very clearly. I I just want to reiterate, on both sides of the aisle, I find a lot of these numbers really, really disappointing. And not all that surprising. So Mm. I don't know. I don't know if that just makes me... Is it not surprising because of human nature? Yeah. Yep. To me, it's... the whole the whole system in general to me is not. I I would be really really surprised if it was like yeah all these people have been super generous and they uh, they've been putting their money where their mouth is and it's not totally dissimilar from yeah Hollywood celebrity talking about we need to really cut back on the fuel we use um, now I'm going to fly out of here on my private jet right and back to one of my five yachts you're like mm-hmm. well that doesn't mean what he or she is saying isn't true and accurate yep. in the same way that. A preacher, yeah. right, who was caught, you know, in a laundry list of moral failures, didn't still say some true things. But I, I, I still think it, it should upset us at some degree to say, okay, if you're if you're gonna hold this platform, this position, publicly, consistently, loudly, um, then you, you know, your money should also be where your mouth is. And yeah. I don't know if they were surprised that they would have to disclose this. Like maybe, yeah, maybe they just thought they'd never actually have to face the music. Um, but even if you're doing it for bad political reasons yes. you know like oh man they're gonna find out I, we should give a whole lot of money away honey let's make, let's let's make, make sure this looks good even if your motives are terrible like uh, at least that much so you know just to see you know 1.3 percent or whatever i don't know it's uh, i think it's, it's discouraging i think it's discouraging but not surprising for the sense of i think we expect on some level some level of hypocrisy from our <laughs> politicians isn't, like, isn't that exciting it's true though and so <laughs> I remember first wrestling that when Al Gore was just was Mr. Uh, climate Change, yeah. and he was at the forefront of it, and then many articles were written that he had a much bigger carbon footprint at his huge house than than like ninety nine percent of the country and you're like, do you not believe what you're saying uh, or no. do you not see the hypocrisy? I know so let's take it down. How about this as a preacher, uh, you and I both teach on a regular basis and preach on a regular basis. do you feel weird when you preach on things that you're not good at or do you own it to the congregation do you say hey this is just something i'm preaching to myself on this one is yeah. that something i find myself saying that all the time yeah but what do same. you do same i say it all the time and i uh, we've kind of touched on this but honestly uh having started my you know quote unquote ministry career in a pretty catastrophic setting yeah. where the guy that hired me had all sorts of secrets that drilled in my brain really early on you, you better be transparent. Yeah. And that's not a great motive. That's not a great origin story. I'm a little embarrassed that, like, I didn't already feel that conviction deep in my soul, but I, yeah. like, saw this flaming wreckage, and I was like, nope, I, I I'm going to run the other direction. So I will regularly say, hey, before we go any further, here's a thing I'm really bad at. We're going to yeah. talk about rest today. We're mm-hmm. going to talk about Sabbath. We're going to talk about patience. We're going to talk about, you know what I mean? Like, and honestly, in another really beautiful sense, like, ha- having my wife right there in the front row, like, I... 
what are you going to talk about rest right now to a whole room <laughs> full of people and pretend like you're good at it? Like she's such good accountability and she's so gracious about it. Yes. But like seeing, having her stare back at me like, Hey man, remember when you lost your cool, uh, 12 hours ago yep. and you're going to talk about patience. Like it, it does sort of hold my feet to the flame in a way that I'm really, really, really grateful for. hundred percent true. And I think you and I've both said this. I think as a preacher, people people appreciate honesty and authenticity. Like they don't sometimes, expect, <laughs> yeah, but they don't expect their preachers. I don't think to be perfect, and so to be able to say, "Hey, I struggle with this, but yeah. it still is biblically true." So let's talk about right, it, right, right, man. But it is. But you are not joking when you're staring your wife in the eye right there in the second row, going, "Oh yeah, I guess I wasn't very patient this week." But hey, church, we right. got to be more patient, more well, forgiving. And more. I remember, you know, preaching in my early twenties, feeling really self conscious about topics that I didn't feel qualified to talk to at all. Like I remember we did a series on suffering and I was really encouraged by a wise uh, mentor of mine. He said, Hey, um, you're going to have people in the room who have lost children, have lost spouses and you're 24. Um, So rather than try to like puff yourself up and say, Hey, I I can play in the big leagues. Say, Hey, I know that you guys know that the suffering I've experienced can't hold a flame to what you've experienced, but you know who can the apostle Paul or like, so let's just learn from them together rather Mm. than having to be like, Hey, I'm the guy that's arrived. I'm the guy that's figured it out. And I need to listen to me. It's a whole lot more like, let's just let the Holy spirit teach us through the word of God, even though I'm completely underqualified at 23 to speak to any of this. Absolutely. So text us at six, eight, six, eight, three, uh, put uh, you before your message, put CG and then your message. Do you care that your politicians out there uh, aren't generous or <laughs> on both sides of the aisle? Does that even matter to you or is it, you know what, that's their personal life. It doesn't doesn't necessarily reflect on their policy. We'd be glad to hear about that. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk to Dr. Richard Land. He is the president of Southern Evangelical Seminary. We're excited to have a talk with him about evangelism and apologetics. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're excited that you are joining us today. You can text us at 68683. Uh, type in the message uh, spot. You put CG followed by your message. Uh, you can also find us online at 1160hope.com as well as on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Well, we are super excited to be joined right now on the phone uh, by the president of Southern Evangelical Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina, Dr. Richard Land. Dr. Land, thank you for joining us today. Happy to be with you. Yeah, and uh, as we said, Dr. Land is the president of Southern Evangelical Seminary, a non-denominational seminary based in Charlotte, North Carolina, which offers uh, first-rate educational programs in evangelism and classic apologetics. Uh, Dr. Land, besides being the president, as if that's not enough, also teaches courses there as well. And Dr. Land, we wanted to talk to you, especially around this Easter time, about this concept of evangelism and apologetics, because... Uh, Ian and I are both pastors, and one thing we hear often uh, is that people just, they struggle to talk to their friends about Jesus. They assume their friends don't want to talk about Jesus. Uh, As someone who has really studied it and teaches on it, uh, speak to those people who do find evangelism to be a big struggle and just assume that people don't want to hear about Jesus. Well, I uh, you know I hope that I'm speaking to folks who 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 want to evangelize. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found I found the most disturbing part of this Barna study was that younger Christians, millennial Christians, feel more prepared 
to answer the questions and mm. more prepared to evangelize, but aren't certain they have the right to do oh, so. Wow. Which shows you the extent to which moral relativism has just um, engulfed us as a culture. Um, I think that the people who want to evangelize, they, many of them are concerned that people will ask them questions that they don't, won't know the answers to. And we can certainly help with that. We, we believe that the Bible commands us to be always ready, as the Apostle Peter said, to be ready to give a reasonable explanation of the hope that lies within you. And that reasonable explanation is the word apologia, from which we get the word apologetics. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we, we feel that we, we can prepare people with the evidences um, uh, of the unique transmission of the textual New Testament. Uh, I was just witnessing somebody last night, and, and I said, look, the, main, the number one reason that I believe the Bible is Jesus did. Mm-hmm. And I went through how Jesus used the Bible to, to God. To Jesus, it was his father talking. And he and he went out of his way to verify some of the parts that that liberals have the most trouble with, like Jonah and the great fish. Right. You know. And and um, uh, I said, look, if I'm a disciple of Jesus, I don't have any choice but to follow the commands of Jesus. And Jesus believed that the, he said, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, not to take away one jot or tittle, mm. but to fulfill it and to help you understand it and to give you the power to live by it. Yeah. Right. Um, so I think that uh, we, you know, we need to um, uh, to have the answers, and we can help people with that. I think also, you know, it says to do so with meekness. Now we tend to get students who are sort of, you know, spiritual green berets for Jesus, <laughs> and 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 they don't, they want to win the argument badly. Well, we want to win the argument, but we help our students to understand that the ultimate goal is not to win the argument. The yeah. ultimate goal is to win the person to saving faith in Jesus. Right. And our enemy is not the person we're witnessing to. Our enemy is the Prince of Darkness. That's right. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but I, I do find that one thing in this, this study that I think we can learn a great deal from, and that is that among millennials especially, um, they don't think with their brains as much as they feel with their hearts. Mm. And and they don't really want they don't care how much we know until they know how much we care. Yeah. And you know I I think oftentimes when it t- comes to millennials we need to um, shift the focus and start with you know um, you know do you have meaning in your life do you have purpose mm, right. do you feel like you're being fulfilled do you mean do you think there's a meaning to life or do you think we're just sort of here and you know specks of dust blown in the wind of fate <laughs> yeah, yeah Bertrand Russell said. And and most of the time, I find that when I ask that question of someone, and I'm, I'm in a conversation with them, um, everything's not great in their in their world. Yeah, right. Everything's not great in their world, and 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 they are not satisfied, and they don't have the meaning and the purpose and the peace and the security they'd like to have. And and once once you start talking to them and hearing their story, then you can tell them your story. Because all Christians have at least one great sermon to preach, mm. and that is, let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. Right, right. Okay, so that's actually a great segue, because one of the statistics that surprised me was that it says 29% of non-Christians want to talk with those who demonstrate interest in other people's stories. So you mentioned millennials are actually really equipped. They have this like cerebral knowledge and understanding, and yet— a third, it seems, don't feel that when they're, quote-unquote, being evangelized, that there's any interest either in their story and the, or the story of other people, 
Why do you think that is? And how, how can we get better at not just caring about people's stories, but actually like demonstrating that we care about other people's stories? Because that seems like uh, that's, a, that's a real issue. Well, you know, I find that most people can really can tell pretty quickly whether you really care or whether you're yeah. putting on an act. You know, you, yeah. you got to really care. Right. You got to really care. Um, you know, um, and then, you know, you need to speak the truth, but you need to speak the truth in love. Mm. You know, I think about my my uh, my six-year-old, when my daughter, my youngest daughter was six years old, she got right up in her grandmother's face, my mother, and said, Granny, please, please quit smoking. I don't want you to die. Mm. I want you to be around for me to grow up. And please don't smoke any more cigarettes. Mm. And, you know, that my mother was a three-pack-a-day person, mm. and I'd been, I'd been praying about it and talking to her and pleading with her. But that got through to her because my six-year-old daughter really cared. Wow, she yeah. just had tears in her eyes. And my mom quit smoking right then and there. Wow. That's incredible. Uh, so, you know, I think that, that if we really care about people, we're going to tell them the truth. Hmm. Uh, but we're going to establish the fact that we really care about them first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how do you go about one of the how do you go about talking to people when they always throw back at you? You know what? All you all the Christians are hypocrites. You know, Christians are judgmental and hypocritical. Um, mm-hmm. what, how do you answer that claim when a non-believer throws that your way? Well, what I say is, you know, the Christian Church is the only group I know of, other than Alcoholics Anonymous, where you got to admit you've done stuff wrong to get in. <laughs> hmm. uh, I'm not perfect. Yeah. You're going to find flaws and faults in me. I'm not perfect. That's why I needed a Savior. And my Savior saves me from my imperfections. Yeah. But I'm not asking you to follow me. I'm asking you to consider following Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And you're not ever going to find any problem with him. I've been a Christian since I was six years old, and there have been many times when I've not been everything that Jesus would have me to be, but there's never been a single moment He's not doing everything he promised he would be to be. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So my question then to to kind of bring it to Easter specifically, because you know, as we often say, the Easter is like the Super Bowl for a lot of a lot of Christ followers. It's, it's the you know Holy Week is the most important week in the church calendar. And uh, could you speak pastorally a little bit to people who are maybe thinking, all right, um, I know that my pastor has been talking about I need to invite friends, and we've sent mailers out, and we have. Facebook ads and all these things. And I think all those things are fine. Um, but it, it feels like every study we read shows that nothing can compare to like a personal invitation. Everything that you're saying about like just a person to person, I care about you as a person. Yeah. Can you can you just speak a, a little bit of encouragement to someone who's maybe on the fence about either going to church or inviting a friend to church specifically with, with Easter in mind? Well, if you really care about someone, um, you need to invite them. If they're not believers, you need to invite them to come with you to church. Would you come with me to church this Sunday? Mm. It's Easter Sunday. It's going to be a great, uh, great, great experience, wonderful music. Uh, uh, I'd really appreciate it if you'd come with me. Um, you know, um, the resurrection is a wonderful sermon. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it's, 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 everything's hinged to it. Um, I, I do think that uh, it does, once again, um, it matters um, how much you care. Now, I do think that in our modern world, um, the number of people that are going to be saved in church is smaller than the number of people that are going to be won on a one-to-one basis. Mm, interesting. Um, that's just that's part, of, that's part of that relational um, 
you know, uh, they feel with their heart kind of thing. Um, I just think that uh, that uh, I, I give invitations every time I speak. Uh, mm. It's part of the Baptist in me. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that... uh, I think it's. I think it, I, I just think it's sinful to preach the gospel and not give people an opportunity to respond. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm very Billy Graham like in that way. <laughs> I'm going to ask them to get up out of their. I'm going to ask them to get up out of their seats and come forward. But mm. but. Um, um, you know, I find I find more and more that the people we, we we have an unusual student body here. We we have a lot of students here who were not who were not raised in Christian homes, who came to the Lord as adults, as college students or as adults, and most often it was through a person to person witness. Mm. Absolutely. Well, Doctor Land, we are super thankful that you were take the time to join us on this busy Easter week. Uh, and uh, as we kind of are encouraging people to take that step of of boldness and of faith here during the Easter week. So, Dr. Richard Land, uh, president of Southern Evangelical Seminary, thank you so much for joining us, and have a great Easter. Uh, you too, and just remember, he is risen. He's risen indeed. <laughs> <laughs> have a great day. God bless you. You Bye-bye. too. You too. That was Dr. Richard Land, the president of Southern Evangelical Seminary, where you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're glad that you're spending some time with us on this Wednesday. Let's just groove to this, right? I don't know that anyone wants to see me groove. I'm grooving right now in my head. You groove all you want, man. There's people in their car right now. They're grooving. Like, oh, no, no, turn that up. Turn that up. Let's see how many times you can say groove in this one segment. Well, here's what we're going to groove with right now. (laughs) We're excited that you're joining us. You can follow us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. You can groove with us on Facebook if you want. Groove with us on Facebook, 1160hope.com or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Also, you can text us at 68683. That's 68683. Type in CG followed by... Your comment. Well, on the Gospel Coalition this week, and this is interesting, you touched on this before uh, in an earlier conversation, and we talked about uh, there's like always, uh, everything's about new and young and young and new, and we can kind of forget um, to value those people who've had life experience, especially when they get really old. Like, you forget, I, you said it so well, but you forget, like, no, that guy probably jumped out of a plane or fought in a war. Yeah, or they, right. did this, they raised seven kids. They, right. You know, they worked for 40 years and put you know, put their kids through college and this, that, and you, but in this of, moment we're like, Oh, he's taking too long in the grocery line exactly. or they're driving a little slow. Exactly. And, and we can lose respect. Yeah. Uh, not just for people who are, who are really old, but, but you know, people who are just a generation above us. And, and one of the things we do wrong, I believe in our culture and also our church culture is that we, we put too much value on youth. Like, uh, like, Oh, you know, Everything's new. Everything's this. So we've got to listen to the 25-year-olds the, the all the time or whatever, which is important. They have a voice. But, but the, the church is meant to be more of a family where we listen to, to all generations and yeah. we're, we're building into each other. And so with that in mind, on the Gospel Coalition, uh, an, uh, an author by the name of Marissa Henley wrote an article called You Need an Older, Bolder Friend. Preach. Uh, she says, uh, over the years, God's provided various older women as teachers and examples for her to look up to. And then she asks this, do you have an older, bolder friend? Here are three reasons to commit to spending time with someone who can offer counsel from a deep well of biblical wisdom and life experience. That's great. And what I like that she does here is she doesn't assume that these ne- that these relationships are natural, that they're mm. just going to happen. Like, right. oh, you know, just come to church for a while, and soon you're going to be hanging out with 65-year-olds. That's right? some of the best like insight I got before I even graduated. Like, hey, yep. if you want 
mentor relationships, you got to go after them. Yes. They don't just fall out of the sky. Yep. And so uh, she gives three reasons why this is important. And we want you to wrestle with this and say, if you think it's important, then you're probably going to need to take the step within your church or your community to say, I'm going to go search people out. So here's number one. Older friends are more likely to be bolder friends. So she said, I shared my sin struggle with Catherine, her friend, her older friend, uh, because I knew she would offer a different perspective from friends my own age. My peers are more likely to excuse my behavior because they struggle with the same issues or because they don't want to rock the boat of friendship. But because this older lady is a mentor friend and not a peer, she's wise and bold. Uh, older women in this sense have learned from experience that true friendships can bear the weight of confrontation and emerge stronger. So she's saying that these, that the people who have life experience are going to tell you more likely the truth and tell you, Hey, you got to stop that. Or you're heading down a bad path here where your peers are more likely to either not have that wisdom or be struggling with the same things. Yeah. And and not just in, boldness to the response, but actually asking like deeper, more probing follow-up questions too, because of their experience. It's sort of like the friend that you want to tell you, you have spinach in your teeth, right? Like, you know, it's a little of a, it's a silly example, but like, you ever been at a meal with somebody and they have something on their face? Yep. Like you feel awkward for them. Yep. Like, oh, I don't want to embarrass them. I don't want to, oh, it's going to be weird if I bring it up. I, have you ever, <laughs> I'm kind of want to put you on the spot. Have you ever like shared a meal with somebody and not told them? Yeah. You just sort of like let it go. You're like, I don't want to. They'll go to the bathroom eventually and see it. Yeah. Like, it's never like that big piece of spinach, but you know, they got something on their chin or but something. But there's like, like yeah. some social expectation. They're like, oh, I, I totally get that. I don't want to rock the boat or yep. I don't know them that well. Somebody who's, you know, got some years on you might say, hey, man, uh, you're, you're going to look like a crazy person if you, <laughs> if, you leave, if you leave the house like that. Like, I think that's, I think that's totally spot on. Number two, older, bolder friends offer the benefit of hindsight. Yeah. Our peers are in the trenches with us. They're struggling to cope with the pressure of others' expectations, navigate shifting roles with aging parents, or keep a marriage fun with a house full of toddlers. These friendships are valuable. Uh, Yes, we need our, quote, I struggle too, friends, but we also need here's what to do, friends. And she holds up the older people as being able to have the value of hindsight. Uh, You're in the middle of this with little kids. If you were just (laughs) surrounded by other people who are drowning with little kids, you might think that it's never going to end. But they have people in front of you going, hey, bud. Eventually, they're going to sleep. Totally. Eventually, they're going to not need diapers. Eventually, they're going to do this so you can keep going. It's this value of hindsight, and we need that at every stage of life. Totally. I think of three men in particular in my life, Warren Anderson, Dave Sanders, and Daryl Malcolm, uh, who have you know gone before me in a number of different ways, ministerially, and in terms of being a father and a husband, and have so faithfully served as a perspective for me when I'm in the midst of something that feels like this is going to crush me. This is going to yep. be it. And like, I know that it feels that way. Uh, you're going to be, you're going to be fine. You're, you're going to get okay. through this. In fact, my wife and I went through something very similar, or we mm. had this with our kids or our first church or whatever it is. Like they're not dismissing it, but they are saying, Hey, uh, I remember feeling that way myself and it may actually feel like it's going to crush you. It's not going to. There you go. And, uh, you know, you, your good friends are usually your same age and they're going through the same stuff. And, and that's what makes this hard. If you're just surrounded by people going through the same stuff, you don't get the benefit of somebody who's been like, I've been there before. Number three, older, bolder friends walk with us in wisdom. The, she says, Catherine, who was her friend, has been studying God's word and applying the gospel to her life for about three decades longer than I have. Her heart and mind are a treasure chest of wisdom, understanding, and insight. Scripture 
is constantly on her lips. She doesn't give the impression that she's arrived and she shares her struggles, basically saying, hey, what? think about the value you can have by linking with somebody who is just further down the road of discipleship right, than you are. Right. They're going to help you grow and learn and navigate the minefields of life and ultimately help you be more Christ-like. And I remember really being blown away the first time those three men that I mentioned would ask a question and then actually want a response. Mm. So it wasn't just they, they didn't, it, they not only didn't give the impression that they'd arrived, but they actually like let me also speak into stuff. Yep. Like they asked questions about stuff and they weren't just setting me up. They weren't just teeing up like a teaching opportunity. They were legitimately, which was crazy to think yep. about a 60 year old dude asking a 25 year old, Hey, what do you think about this? How yes. would you handle this? Like, I remember just being so honored and probably giving some pretty terrible advice. You know, like <laughs> yeah. it, it was way less about, I think, the effectiveness <laughs> or the wisdom of my advice. Yeah. It was way more about like, oh, this guy actually wants to do life with me. Yep. Like he actually thinks I'm not a total screw up or a total dummy, which I had told myself for a long time I was. Yeah. And uh, those kinds of things had impact. They probably still has impact that I'm not even really fully realizing. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think the takeaway from this is if you are – uh, younger or more kind of middle-aged, you still need those people in front of you. Yeah. And those are not just going to happen. Those are not just going to happen. And you need to uh, be actively, like I've learned this as I've gotten older, that if I think I need certain things in my life, like they're not just going to show up most likely. Yeah, right. I need to like go after them. Yeah. Uh, on the other side, if you're out there listening and you're kind of uh, further along in life, yeah. and you might be like, well, what age is that? There's always people younger than you, right? If you're further along in life, who are the people uh, that you're bringing along? Yep. Who whose lives are you entering into and saying, you know what? Instead of you know railing against those millennials or like wagging my finger at the Gen Xers or whatever, I'm going to like pick a couple guys or girls and I'm going to build into their life and I'm going to just do my best to help them uh, for the sake of them just you know gaining wisdom and being able to navigate life. And the thing that I think is is probably worth stating, too, because I think sometimes to that second category of person, I think we often don't speak up. Uh, I'm not really putting myself in that category, yeah. but I, I certainly felt this way. I don't I don't want to offer some perspective or offer any kind of mentorship because I'm just afraid that's going to be weird or they're not. They probably don't want to hear it. Like yeah. I, I can tell you as as somebody who has been the recipient of years of wisdom, yep. like young people are craving it. They're absolutely. hungry for it. And I think you will be absolutely amazed at what just simply an email or a phone call could do to say, Hey, I don't know if you're even interested. I'd love to invest in you. I'd yeah. love to pour into you. Even if that's just coffee once a month to just to see how you are. I think, I think people would be amazed that the 25 year olds, the 35 year olds would be losing their minds yep. to have people a couple decades ahead of them say, I'd like to make time for you. I'd, I'd like to invest yep. in you. I think, uh, you know, Dave Ferguson's Hero Maker is really all yeah. about that. How, how yeah. do we actually not be the hero, but make heroes of other people? And I think that's such an important call. And what a cool way to like, you know, if you're kind of near, I don't want to be melodramatic, like you're near the end of your life. But if you're if you're further down the road, what better legacy to leave than to build into that next generation? Totally. Uh, and, and that will outlast you. So. Uh, if you're young, find somebody old to link arms with. If you're older, find someone young that you can help. All right, ma'am. Coming up next, we've talked about some heavy stuff, some light stuff, but we are going to just do the lunacy that we found on the internet. That's what's coming up next as we close the show. This is The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. 
Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. With the last 10 minutes or so of our show every day, what we like to do is just pop the balloon a little bit, have some levity. Pop the balloon? You like all my imagery I give. Landing the plane, docking the ship, Those make sense. I don't think popping the balloon. Popping the balloon is more like, you know, stressful this (laughs) night. Pop the balloon with some laughs. One of these things is not like the other, Brian. I'm going with this. I know you are. uh, Disclaimer again, we have not seen these, and I'm excited to see these because Keith, our executive producer, Keith Conrad, who is the one who pulls these with the pits with the uh with the sound bites and everything it's his birthday today it is his birthday today happy he is birthday, 86 keith. years old <laughs> he looks great he looks happy great. birthday keith and i'm thinking he probably went a little overboard today you think so it's his birthday I does overboard probably... for keith though mean extra dark I or think so. <laughs> well you're going first so let's find out i can't wait here we go new mexico Man called in bomb threat to get girlfriend off work. Is <laughs> this man Keith Conrad? No. Okay. Not. A, uh, a man is behind bars after police say he called in a bomb threat to a store in February to get his girlfriend off work. Aaron Gutierrez, 26, has been charged with bomb scares unlawful, a fourth-degree felony. I did not know that. Mm. According to the Lovington Police Department, their officers responded to a phone-in bomb threat at the Family Dollar. An investigation which involved police obtaining search warrants for phone records revealed that Gutierrez's girlfriend worked at the Family Dollar. Police said Gutierrez called in the threat to get her off work so that he could see her. So he's ultimately a romantic. Yes, he is. I just love making things go kablooey. (laughs) (laughs) Out of Connecticut, a high school food fight ends with riot charges. Students scheduled a food fight. They scheduled a food fight. Scheduled a food (laughs) fight. That's the nerdiest thing I've ever heard. Outstanding. At their Connecticut high school last week that escalated into a riot with hundreds of them throwing eggs, cans of soda, and other objects. Hmm. A teacher and police officer were injured, police say, and 10 students ages 15 to 17 were arrested. School officials knew the fight was planned for Friday, thanks in part to social media. The students, uh, they met with the students beforehand to head it off. The students agreed and no one started the fight in the cafeteria, but a few students in an outdoor courtyard started throwing things. Then hundreds of students ran out of the building and joined the melee. (laughs) I mean, that sounds about right. Nope. All right, here we go. Kansas. Baby T-Rex fossil listed on eBay for $3 million sparks outrage. What could this outrage possibly be, Brian? I don't know. The fossil of a baby T-Rex is being sold on eBay for almost $3 million, sparking outrage. I just said that. The 68 million-year-old fossil. Ah, that's a debated dating of that. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get into that later. Reportedly listed by professional fossil hunter Alan Dietrich. Fossil hunter? Really? They they exist? Yeah. How hard is it to hunt a fossil? They're not really getting away from you. (laughs) Great job, Alan. Uh, It has a buy it now option asking price of only $2.95 million. The listing uh, last update on Tuesday claims the artifact is most likely the only baby T-Rex in the world, adding that the specimen has a 15-foot-long body, 21-inch skull, and serrated teeth. I don't understand what the outrage is, though. I don't really want to read the rest of it. According to the specimen on exhibit, uh, loan to us has been removed from the exhibit and is being returned to the owner, blah, 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 blah. So it sounds like, uh, I don't know. What is the outrage here? That they they would sell something that important on eBay. Ah, All right, I'm fine with it. I think that's it. Life, uh... Finds a way. <laughs> I love Ohio. that line. Ohio. A man arrested for throwing iguana at a restaurant manager. A 49-year-old man was arrested after he allegedly pulled an iguana from under his shirt. Interesting. 
swung it around above his head by its tail and threw it at an employee at a restaurant. As one does. The iguana, has a name named Cooper, Mm -hmm. is currently in the custody of the Lake County Humane Society and will be reevaluated by a veterinarian. Authorities said they were called to the establishment for an unruly customer who threw an animal at the store manager. The man was arrested, charged with disorderly conduct, resisting arrest, and, of course, animal cruelty. This is a very uh, Jurassic Park that specific. Was. Okay, so can we just mourn for a second that we didn't have a single one out of Florida today? How? Maybe our first one ever. I, like I, that had to be on purpose. Like, he had to try. It's for Keith's birthday. We didn't go to England on this God. one. England or Florida, man, oh man. Missouri woman takes baseball bat to St. Louis restaurant that ran out of chocolate ice cream. Hey, yeah. she might be justified. Maybe vanilla. Oh, I'm not what? a big chocolate guy. You're not a chocolate. Guy. I'm okay. not vanilla. Like, we'll have an intervention after the show. Would you choose chocolate over vanilla? Of course, of course I would. Chocolate over strawberry? Oh boy, now we're getting into some really. Okay. I have to get back to you. Okay. Ne- Neapolitan. <laughs> Neapolitan. A woman who wanted chocolate ice cream had a meltdown. Haha, <laughs> see what they did there. <laughs> After employees at a St. Louis restaurant and told her the only they only had vanilla last month, police say. <laughs> Such a fun. Anyway, she spit on workers, and that's not good, and took a baseball bat to the windows of a Rally's restaurant after she was told they'd run out of chocolate early on March 27th, police said. She then got into a vehicle and then split. (laughs) 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 Whoever wrote this is my hero, heading west on Lindell Boulevard. Police were unable to supply surveillance images on Monday. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that was quick. Do you know I spent a while working in Panera today? This one Panera I was at had not one bagel. That's a mistake. That feels like that's part of their their gig. How, anyway. how dare they? <laughs> like we said, we always end with hard-hitting news. There you go. <laughs> for Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. This has been The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.